All right. Hello, everyone. This episode of the podcast, I had the pleasure of talking with Dr. Laszlo Boros. Uh, Laszlo is an expert in deuteronomics or the study of deuterium. He spent 21 years as a professor of pediatrics at UCLA in Los Angeles uh, School of Medicine. And there he is the co-director of the Stable Isotope Research Laboratory and investigator at the Clinical and Translational Research Institute at the Harbor UCLA Medical Center. As I mentioned, he's an expert in deuterium, which we discussed in depth in this episode. So it's pretty technical. I try to keep it high level. This is one of the most under-discussed aspects of health, in my opinion. And I'm really excited for you to get educated on this topic of deuterium. We have a few more podcast episodes coming that are also going to cover this. So just wanted to introduce it to you with probably the world expert or one of the world experts in deuteronomics, and that's Dr. Laszlo Boros. This is Decentralized Radio. I'm Tristan. And I'm Ryan. The goal of this podcast is to help educate you on how to live your most optimal life. We will host industry expert guests to shed light on topics that matter. We are not gurus, rather two individuals who have had to pave their own path to health and vitality, independent of the centralized systems that plague modern society. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Decentralized Radio. Today, we have an exciting podcast ahead, one that I've wanted to do for a bit of time now. Uh, We're going to talk about deuterium with Dr. Boros. Laszlo, how's it going? Thanks for coming. Uh, I'm very good. Thank you so much for inviting me. And um, uh, you are in Australia. I'm in Budapest. So it's a it's an intercontinental talk for that man. Yeah, yeah. It's been it's been fun uh, arranging time zones here the last couple of weeks with podcasts. And yeah, it's cool um, to kind of be around the world and connect with everyone. And like I was saying pre-show, this this is a topic that seems to be gaining momentum. And it's funny because I was reading a bit of uh, Gabor's book, Defeating Cancer. Um, and I didn't realize that that was like 20 years old when you know he, he wrote that. And a lot of this research has actually been going back a few decades on deuterium. So I guess at first is, is maybe your background. I know you're at UCLA for, for quite a bit. And how did you get interested and involved in really becoming one of the world experts on deuterium? Well, it's kind of a, a, a funny and interesting story. And that is, um, indeed, um, I got my medical diploma in 1987 from the Saget School of Medicine, where Albert Sandiogi received or worked uh, f- for longer periods and uh, got his Nobel Prize in 1937 uh, regarding vitamin C, fumarate hydratase, and biological oxidation. In fact, my grandparents knew him back then in the late 20s um, because they also lived in Saget. And uh, after medical school, I got a a domestic uh, fellowship from the Hungarian Academy of Sciences but I was only working for about a year and a half, fulfilling my fellowship. And then I left uh, uh, Hungary and I went to Germany. And then from Germany, I went to the United States, the Ohio State University, Columbus, Ohio, uh, where I spent five, six years as a research scientist. And 
1998, I joined the faculty of UCLA, um, <clears throat> Department of Pediatrics, Harbor UCLA Medical Center, and I started working with Dr. Paul Lee, who at that time was um, one of the um, uh, groundbreaking scientists in stable isotope chemistry and stable isotope metabolic profiling. In fact, later we uh, started a company offering stable isotope metabolic profiling, uh, stable isotope-based metabolic profiling services uh, for uh, academics and pharmaceutical companies. And then <clears throat> I became a professor of pediatrics of the Agent series in, 19, uh, in 2017. And then uh, <clears throat> I started working for medical and scientific journals as editor and I've been reviewing articles for quite a long time, and I retired my UCLA position <clears throat> in uh, 2021. And ever since, I am teaching deuteronomics, which is the biological um, study of uh, deuterium in the living cells and their compartments, and also in the environment, food especially, and, and drinks, and so on. And uh, we are learning in uh, a continuous pattern of how deuterium affects almost entirely the whole biological system and uh, what are the specifics, what are the biochemical background information that we need to consider. <clears throat> and deuteronomics goes back in time to very ancient scriptures, and we are just exploring a whole set of very exciting and very novel, yet very old knowledge and positioning them in various uh, uh, translational scientific arenas in medicine. And um, I do a lot of editing for scientific journals, including scientific reports, which is the fifth most cited journal. Uh, on this planet, and um, we do position deuteronomics or the human deuteronome project um, into scientific arenas or areas <clears throat> where they can be used both for diagnostics and for therapeutic purposes. Wow, well, that's exciting that you can kind of focus your whole career on this right now, and I guess I want to get into maybe what was the inflection point for you to really hone in? But maybe for the audience as well, it's it's easy for me to just get carried away in, in this topic. But for those who aren't as familiar with deuterium, why it's so important, maybe we can just give a, a quick introduction on you know what deuterium is and get into maybe a little bit on, on why it's it's bad for our health or why we're more exposed to it than usual or in the past and then get back to your work and what you're focusing on now in more detail. Thank you so much. Well, indeed, uh, I do deuteronomics entirely. Um, that's what I do now. Uh, and that's how it's been in the last 10 years. <clears throat> and um, the story starts um, back in Los Angeles when one of my friends who is involved in, in, in uh, freighter uh, shipping business, <clears throat> he told me that um, he is shipping this deuterium depleted water to the United States for therapeutic purposes, and it's very helpful for 
various diseases, and I didn't know exactly what to make of it. Yet, because I was not involved in deuteronomics or deuterium research back then, it's early 2000s, so maybe it was 2001. <clears throat> and he told me that he wanted me to do some experiments. And he actually brought some of that water, uh, deuterium depleted water, to my lab. And uh, I was not interested in particular in it at that time because we were we have to have a, an agreement, a research agreement for that <clears throat> matter. So I told him I need to talk to the investigator who is studying this and providing, and that was Gabor Shomyai, whose book you read. And <clears throat> sure enough, they were interested in exploring the effect of deuterium depleted water in cancer cell culture studies, and we did very explorative and very fundamental studies using different concentrations different concentrations of deuterium depleted water in cancer cell cultures and we learned that actually it has a very clear uh, biochemical um, effect on cells cell cultures especially tumor cell cultures so we published that data and for the audience to understand what deuterium is, first we have to uh, cover what hydrogen or protons are. Um, <clears throat> hydrogen and the nucleus of hydrogen, the proton, is the simplest um, element in our periodic table. <clears throat> and also, the way I like to describe this, uh, those are the ping-pong balls of life, because hydrogen carries energy, makes chemical bonds, and drive these um, ATPase nanomotors in our mitochondria um, <clears throat> that provide ATP uh, for or adenosine triphosphate for energy balance purposes in living cells, but um, also releases energy when it joins oxygen to form metabolic water or matrix water. Two protons would join an oxygen from air and the protons come from food or the hydrogen come from food. And um, when we oxidize, when we burn food, practically is to generate this metabolic water, mitochondrial metabolic water, uh, to provide energy as well. So usually uh, the way we describe this is that there's a chemical reaction behind energy production in our cells, and that's water formation. So when oxygen uh, <clears throat> joins two hydrogens or two protons, um, 280, around 280 kilojoule per mole energy is released. So that's the, the, the bulk of energy in the form of heat that is produced in cells. And in the meantime, these protons, before they join oxygen, taken off of food, mostly fatty acids, they power these nanomotors, they release about 30 kilojoule per mole energy. So after all, when you add these together, <clears throat> you end up with at least, uh, you, you know, 350 kilojoule per more energy for one water molecule to be formed um, in the molar range. So <clears throat> practically, it is the most efficient energy producing system. It's a hydrogen powered engine in that matter, in our mitochondria. And these are actually rotating nanomotors. If you sum of those animations, you can 
see these are like hair drying hair dryers, but the the, the road or, or the rotating part is powered by protons and not electrons. So it's a, it's a highly efficient, very critical, basic, fundamental element and the, the foundation of life, practically the operation of these nanomotors. They are unique and uniform in all living forms. So all cells are using the same or the same type of nanomotors um, they can reach extreme uh, rotations, revelations, uh, about 100,000 rotations per minute in some of the um, um, uh, prokaryotes. They also use these <clears throat> nanomotors very intensely for various purposes. But practically, hydrogen is the, the atom, the smallest atom in the periodic table, which can deliver all this um, um, work for our body when it jumps from carbon to oxygen and during photosynthesis from oxygen to carbon. So life is practically about using protons, oxygen, and carbons to capture the energy of light and to transfer this into living systems where these three atoms, carbon, oxygen, and hydrogen, the most common ones in living organic um, systems and molecules, that's how energy is produced practically when these protons are jumping from atom to an atom. In the meantime, they rotate proteins or provide structural chemical bonds. Now, uh, as you would expect, um, if an atom has a uh, <clears throat> stabilized pair, um, one proton and one neutron can actually make a deuteron, which is unfortunately twice as large and uh, twice as heavy when we look at the nucleus of this proton uh, and the neutron attached to it. And it makes um, protons operations difficult simply because they bind, they replace, they exchange with protons um, when chemical bonds, for that matter, are available. And they break these nanomotors and they break all moving proteins that protons would, would power in our system, in our cells. And for that matter, deuterons, which are the stable isotopic pair of protons or hydrogen, they can damage uh, moving uh, proteins and moving parts in our cells. But in the meantime, um, deuterons are also <clears throat> important in collagen, for example, where you have structural proteins. Actually, deuterons provide this unbreakable chemical, chemical bonds in uh, structural proteins that make our body, make our bones, for example, cartilages and tendons, uh, stronger and, and more durable uh, for that matter. <clears throat> so it seems like uh, deuterium needs to be regulated in our body, in our cells, to, um, to provide a structural um, element uh, in 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 uh, bones. That's those are the most common places. Um, actually, tumor cells like using them because of their structural 
um, capability of, of making structural bonds um, and sturdy bonds in <coughs> proton-driven um, um, structures. And also what is really, I would say, uh, critically important understanding the proton-deuteron <coughs> ratio or the significance of it is practically our nutrition, our lifestyle, and our health in general. So it's it's really our body is able to regulate deuterium uh, simply based on chemical reactions um, that are designed uh, to form or make structural proteins, and they can our cells can actually separate protons and deuterons for various biological purposes. Some of these details are still under uh, research and, and, and scientific discovery studies. Um, we do a lot of collaborations and discussions with Dr. Stephanie Seneff, um, who is involved also in uh, deuterium research and deuteronomics. And, um, and the other important uh, aspect of deuteronomics or deuterium compared to protons is that this what we call is the kinetic isotope effect. That means that if a deuteron, twice as heavy proton, um, like quote-unquote, replaces a, a, a proton, then it's going to be eight times to 15 times harder to remove from that chemical bond uh, or impossible to remove when we talk about proline, um, which is an amino acid. If it gets deuterated, that proline amino acid can be cooked in 20% hydrochloric acid for three days um, and it would not lose the, the deuteron from its chemical bond. So it's, it's <clears throat> extremely uh, difficult atom or isotope to remove uh, from various uh, structures. And for that matter, our body has to regulate proton-deuteron ratios for physiological, biological, and for health purposes. And in, in a summary, I think it's a little bit technical, but in, in very simple terms, um, practically deuterons are your SUV in your driving, you know, in your driveway that may not be able to park your car in the garage simply because it's twice as large, twice as heavy if you have a passenger car. So it's practically the twice as big twin brothers of, of these chemical <clears throat> at, atomic um, principles, proton and deuterons. Um, they behave very differently, yet they are twins in that matter because they have one proton, so they are the same atom, atomic kind of st structural and if you look at the nomenclature, by definition, uh, a proton determines the the atom. So hydrogen and deuterons um, <clears throat> are practically the same atom, but the stabilized pair, stabilized topic pair, deuteron is twice as heavy, twice as large. Gone with kinetic isotope effects that are in some systems is unpredictable. So, uh, <clears throat> and proton is the most common. Atom in our system is the most abundant atom in our system, is the most mobile atom in our system. So deuterons have to be regulated very carefully by ourselves for basic health purposes. Hey, friend. Thanks for listening. If you really enjoy this podcast, 
it would be really appreciated if you left us a five-star review on Spotify, Apple, or subscribe to our content on YouTube. This helps us get to a larger reach and a larger audience to spread this wonderful free education. Yeah, wow, that was a fantastic overview. I mean, there's so much I want to dive into there. Things like proline, trapping, deuterium. But first, for the, for the audience, I think the way I see this is um, to understand this at a higher level, and you can comment on this, is, is really deuterium is, is affecting the, the mitochondrial output, right? The mitochondria, the electron transport chain is building up this proton gradient, this mitochondrial membrane potential, this voltage so that it can pump protons through our nanomotors. Um, and when those protons uh, are deuterons, which are twice the mass because of that neutron, um, that's going to mess up the process. And therefore, you know, it could lead to reduce ATP production, just reduce metabolic water production, mitochondrial dysfunction, which we know is kind of leading to a lot of chronic disease down the road. So, and there's so many other things to couple that with. And that's why it's cool that, you know, Stephanie Seneff, who we're going to talk to as well, is coupling that with glyphosate. But I want to get into maybe the ATPs a little bit. So are the deuterons, are they like slowing it down, like gunking it up, like kind of putting in lower quality gasoline into a high performing vehicle? Or are they kind of like stopping it completely after a certain point? Because that's something I've been curious about is that dependent on just over time because obviously you know cells are being uh apoptotic and and turning over quite a bit but i'm curious if there's a that's an right. answer to that um deuterons they make these nanomotors stutter and they break these nanomotors okay. so uh, depending on their their uh rotational speed or or the rotations they perform in a minute and uh, <clears throat> practically, deuterons, as they um, try to fit into the, the nanomotors, carry 9 to 12 protons at any given time, and they pick them up from the outside of the inner membrane of the mitochondria. Mitochondria should operate in a deuterium-free environment. That's, <clears throat> that's how we get kind of a good description of the, the situation, definitely very low in deuterium, the mitochondrial environment, the matrix especially. And Dr. Abdullah Olgun wrote a paper about this, um, and this is, um, I think, the best paper to learn about uh, ATPase and the deuteration or deuterium um, damage delivered um, to these nanomotors, uh, simply because there are mathematical calculations and there are, there are good models and systems to apply to, to study the effect of deuteronation or deuterons or deuteronomics of these nanomotors function. And you, you're right, the mitochondria is a very unique place because as far as we know how nature operates, uh, the mitochondrial matrix or the intermembrane space is what can separate protons from electrons and produce these positively charged proton hydrogen nuclei that are, that are very reactive. They actually, they explode in nature. Um, uh, you know, if you smell gas in your apartment, the first thing you need to know is don't turn on the light switch because if that little spark with activated oxygen, can the whole apartment building kind of explode? 
and that's a hydrogen oxygen. The same reaction happens in mitochondria under controlled um, uh, circumstances, and that means uh, <clears throat> they have to. These reactions have to be um, controlled and occur in a very <clears throat> controlled and and uh, slow pace to release all the energy. And the nanomotors are part of this controlling the proton flux or the proton flow into the in, into the mitochondrial matrix where oxygen activated oxygen is waiting on complex four. You, you probably read about the complex, the protein complexes of the electron transport chain, uh, which provide a negative charge, kind of the spark plug uh, for this whole system that activates oxygen and ac- oxygen and, and hydrogen when it unites that's when the bigger energy or the explosion, I mean, quote unquote, in biological systems, they don't explode because these systems, these reactions are controlled. But <clears throat> that's practically um, how most of the biological energy is generated in, in uh, mitochondria and uh uh, deposited into uh, phosphate bonds when it comes to ATP or just released in the form of heat when uh, met- metabolic or matrix water is formed. And uh, understanding these processes between mitochondria and the peroxisomes, which we have not talked much in the past, but it seems like we have to bring in the peroxisomal uh, beta oxidation or fatty acid oxidation and uh, hydrogen peroxide formation and metabolic water formation into this whole system. And this is the newest, most recent paper we wrote, and it's under review now. And uh, we kind of approached the system uh, <clears throat> of the Himalaya Mount Everest uh, um, climbers who can do this without oxygen, supplemental oxygen. And it seems that they have to utilize these nanomotors, these metabolic water forming systems and their proxisomes using dissolved and also carried oxygen, uh, oxygen that is carried uh, by hemoglobin and also using the dissolved O2 or oxygen gas in our <clears throat> blood to be able to climb all the way up to the Mount Everest in ketosis, in a fat-burning state, in a deuterium-depleting fat-burning state. It seems like that's the key to achieve uh, <clears throat> any extreme uh, sporting challenge or, like, for that matter, climbing up to the top of the the. the Mount Everest, you know, the Himalaya, Mount Everest is a, I would say that's the ultimate challenge with that supplemental oxygen. And you can do this if you understand the deuteron, proton, energy production, nutrition, kind of connect those dots. And it's possible, but uh, you have to kind of learn the biochemistry of it. And this is what we did. But it seems that, uh, after all, these nanomotors that stutter and then break, in the presence of deuterium, that's why we have to be careful what we eat because the deuterium content of our food will determine the deuterium, con- de- 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 uh, deuterium content in our mitochondrial matrix and the nanomotor functions and the energy ba- balance of our cells. <clears throat> so for that matter, this is the most fundamental and critical 
uh, principle and, and steps in biochemistry that we need to understand. Now, I was lucky enough to know Dr. Paul Boyer, Boyer, who got the Nobel Prize for nanomotor functions. He was at UCLA. Um, we buried him in, I believe it was 2018. Uh, he was a great scientist. Uh, he, he discovered these, but the way he described it is that rotating proteins uh, performing chemical reactions, which was huge at that time, late 1980s, uh, mid and late 1980s. And Dutum's research came in early 1990s, mostly by Dr. Gabor Shomyai, who showed the first time um, in Budapest, in Hungary, that uh, deuterium proton proton deuteron ratios determine biological behavior and trans- cell transformation. And from then on, he could not connect this with metabolic water production. That was my biochemical contribution to this whole process. And ever since, we saw more and more scientists applying deuteronomics research or the human deuteronome pro- project to their particular field and area. And there is now a growing set of publications that, um, especially in oncology or experimental oncology and to some matter, um, uh, clinical oncology, where we actually um, determine deuteron or deuterium levels in the patient's breath, and we make um, clinical translational predictions and outcome measures, and there are increasing numbers of publications in the peer-reviewed medical literature that use deuteronomics in their discussions to explain their findings. Yeah, wow. I mean, it's it's so cool just the fact that, you know, the nanomotors getting into that and how much progress they're making. I'll have to link that that paper by Abdullah Algun. I was reading that actually earlier today in preparation and and it's fascinating and especially getting into the life the half-life of these nanomotors, the F0 subunit, I think it's like 40 to 50 hours. So just thinking on the scale of, of these mitochondria is, is really fascinating to me. But you mentioned a lot of important parts there, right? And that's and kind of what I want to get into is, is why we might be, you know, having more deuterium in our environment and thus higher deuterium uh, being produced um, as a result in our mitochondria. And a lot of that's due to the food we eat. So from my understanding, it's basically that the carbohydrates, um, as you mentioned, ketosis being important. So the carbohydrates are, are kind of highest. The processed foods are, are highest in deuterium. And then the fats are, are the lowest. And I think it's spanning, you know, quite a bit. But before maybe even getting into that, what is, you know, normal levels? So from basically what I've read, like 150 parts per million is, is pretty normal um is that now or is that something as a result of like modern society like that's what's common maybe not normal maybe normal is like 145 so maybe you could shed some light on that and then we could get into some of the food um aspects of it because that's really what i think is, is cool well a normal is hard to determine because if you look at anthropological data and if you look at historical data and you look at uh, geographical physics data, 
you learn that that um, because of the temperature changes of our planet um, of Earth, um, the biggest source of water vapor, and for that matter, deuterium. Deuterium is carried in our oceans uh, in the form in in water, and uh, it currently the the amount of deuterium, the concentration is 155.6 parts per million, um, which means that out of a million hydrogen atoms in water, 155 of them are de- deuterons. And now, that's in once, ocean water, correct? That's in ocean water. It's, okay. it's called the Vienna Mean Oceanic Water Deuterium Concentration. That's what laboratories use. As the baseline. As their standards, as their yeah. baseline. This is the most abundant uh, deuterium, environmental deuterium that we can be exposed to. Maybe there are a few ppm increases when you go to the Dead Sea with higher elevations and high evaporation rates. Um, maybe you can measure in some environmental water 160 ppm, but it's between 155 and 160 ppm in the environment under, um, even under extreme conditions. Now, you can find lower deuterium contents easier uh, based on historic geographical and also anthropological data back in, uh, like, uh, in caveman's time, um, 15,000 years ago, they did a study of oceanic vapor uh, um, captured by um, volcanic eruptions and deposited in, in those ash uh, deposits. Um, um, the, the vapor, the oceanic vapor, the tomb content was only 135 ppm. So as we move throughout the history of of our Earth planet based on temperatures and some other factors, winds, and uh, and so on, uh, you see um, numbers between 135 and 155 ppm, which is 20 ppm. It's it's quite a lot when you kind of look at the physics of of deuterium. And uh, in fact, in um, animal samples, you can see these variations, and uh, we believe that the human the anthropological um, aspect of it is that the time of creation or the time of evolution, you know, you use the way you want to use it. I'm, I'm not using evolution very much because there are data contradicting the process now. Um, even science can cannot prove that uh, with the development or advancements of genomics research. So it seems like it's a dead end road explaining these biological <coughs> systems. So I would just use anthropological adaptation. Uh, we were adopted to lower deuterium environment or lower uh, lower environmental deuterium exposures, maybe in the range of 135 ppm. That was the oceanic vapor and the vegetation was using as rainwater um, a lot lower, about 20 ppm lower uh, deuterium concentration. And this is how biological systems evolved. Now, uh, prokaryotes, which are the bacteria, um, 
and and mostly you know ferment sugars they do use deuterium to make their dna unstable so they continuously provide a, um, a dividing for meaning that a, a, a signal for continuous cell divisions, and this is how cancer cells behave. But it seems like it's a, it's a deuterium based process to keep DNA unstable and chemically um, uh, in an unemployed state, meaning that it's it's never kind of stops growing the DNA content. Then the cells have to divide continuously. That's very characteristic of bacteria. They cannot really wrap their DNA into a nucleus, meaning that they cannot really show the morphology of eukaryotic cells who have mitochondria are able to deplete deuterium and form a stable DNA that can be locked into a nucleus and they they only divide in case there is a Access deuterium in their environment, or <clears throat> they divide based on uh, various growth signals. But it seems that uh, the biological behavior, as far as prokaryotic or eukaryotic cells or organelles, those regulate these uh, phenotypic behaviors or these behavioral patterns by the deuterium that they recruit from the environment from sugars mostly. Um, if you uh, <clears throat> look at bacterial growth, they, also, they always grow in sugars and not on fat. If you leave your bacon out in the sun and a, 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 an apple piece next to it, uh, in a few days your apple will be rotten by bacterial and, and fungal um, fermentation, but your fat uh, may be the same practically because because of the, of the low deuterium content, um, fatty acids are not a good source of deuterium for these continuously dividing cells. And for that matter, um, in fact, uh, <clears throat> understanding the process of how deuterium is depleted in fat kind of explains how um, diet from the dietary perspective or from the ketosis perspective, why our sleep patterns, why when we are born, why we actually operate in the ketogenic metabolic state that helps us to um, to regulate deuterium for eukaryotic cells so they can uh, behave in a differentiated um, pattern or manner and they can contribute to uh, determine organ uh, functions. And when deuterium accumulates in these cells, Nanomotors are broken, metabolic crowding occurs, meaning that you cannot really get rid of the carbon source or the carbons that you take in as in the form of food, organic molecules that you burn, and practically you develop chronic disease processes, obesity, diabetes, um, 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 various dementia-related conditions, metabolic syndrome, cancer is a big deal nowadays. Uh, these are most like chronic epidemics. Um, I'm working with the uh, Kennedy team um, and other medical teams on deuteronomics and the chronic disease uh, epidemics in the United States is a is a is a huge. It's it's really a a, a huge task 
uh, even part of, of presidential debates, simply because um, back in the 70s, we looked at what, 6-7% of population having chronic disease processes. Now it's close to 60 or even over 60%. So it's, you know, seven, eight fold higher than it was just a few decades ago, three, four decades ago. So this needs to be addressed from the fundamental basic biochemistry and medical um, research aspects of those are very critical to address these devastating trends in human health and life expectancy now. We can see changing, deep, deep dropping in the United States. So um, it seems like the food industry, the processed foods, the carbohydrate-rich uh, dieting, uh, the low-fat products, whatever those are, I tend to eat uh, in a carnivore lifestyle using grass-fed animals. And thank you for covering some of the papers we wrote. Um, those are very important contributions to understand this deuteronomics to serve your health. And that's practically the best way to control your deuterium intake by the appropriate food and nutritional and lifestyle matters. And um, we would like to um, kind of position the normal range as we see biochemically, that should be probably close to the 130 range instead of the 150 or 155 range, which is unfortunately very common nowadays when we measure the tomb concentration in, in, in breath, for example, vapor of, of, of exhaled uh, human breath. Uh, we would like to see those in the 130 range. Wow. I think that's so cool because it's, yeah, it sounds like it's not that big of a deal, like 135 to 150 or 135 to 155, like you're, you're saying. But I know that's, you know, a tremendous difference in, in terms of health and in mitochondrial function, right? So basically what you're saying is that through majority of, of human existence, our biology has basically been designed to operate at around the mid-130 range parts per million. And it's only been recently that we've kind of had this this warming is that really the the main cause or is it just um the variations of of sea temperatures and everything industrial combined? processes um when it comes to food production the gmo oh, yeah, the yeah. I, I just from the water the water yeah. perspective the water is is temperature wind okay. and and solar and light electromagnetic exposure so it's it is it is a physics related uh, factor. Uh, Got it. How the water deuterium or the water vapor? The water is always almost always almost the same. It's hundred fifty five ppm. The vapor of it that provides the rainwater for vegetations. That's what determines the deuterium environment. After Got it. Because we don't drink. Uh, oceanic water, and even the animals that live in the ocean, they cannot drink oceanic water because of the high um, salt content. Yep. And I think that's purposefully, that's how it was created. But um, after all, um, indeed, we depend on water vapor for um, vegetation and biological um, response from the dry land of the 
vapor that comes from the oceans and that determines and obviously various uh, crop related industrial processes can change fundamentally the tumor discrimination properties of these plants and growth rates and so on. So this is what we see. Now, reflecting back to your question, um, you need to look at deuterons or deuterium as not as their abundance is a problem because it's really not an abundant isotope. It's one of the least common isotopes. It's, it's a lot less than C13, which is the stabilized dope of carbon. But the um, carbon isotope, which is 1.1% of all carbons on this planet, in, instead of 0.015% when we talk about deuterium, so that there's like magnitudes of differences. But the stable isotope of carbon is only 8% heavier than the parenine or the pen atom carbon in that case. It has a molecular atomic mass of 12 dartons. And deuteron, proton has only one darton and deuteron has two dartons. So it's, it's a hundred percent increase. It's doubling the size and it's, it's a huge change as far as increasing the weight of an isotopic pair. So the damage that they deliver, that's, that's huge. The, the damage that they can deliver in a, um, uh, biochemical system, that is, that is, is, is devastating. It's the way I usually describe it is that, um, you know, just look at an airport where there are so many people, um, changing airplanes and coming in and out. And all of a sudden there's a terrorist appear somewhere. Somehow they saw somebody running or, and they shut down the whole airport simply because they have to find that one guy instead of just kind of letting happen everything and see if they can see this guy in action. And then they can, no, they start looking, they shut down the airport and until they find that guy, until your biological system finds that deuterium, it shuts down or tries to adapt to the situation where there is a deuteron somewhere that is not belonging there and, and, or if it makes it there, then your biological system will respond in a dramatic way. So even though it's an uncommon stable isotope and the differences 20 ppm may not be as large or significant from like the bird eyes view, when you look at the very rapid rotating nanomotors, even changing one or two ppm in deuterium because of the velocity of these nanomotors, uh, <coughs> the, the, the likelihood of these nanomotors to being broken and kind of over exceeding, kind of overloading your deuterium scavenging mechanisms um, in your system, uh, that risk is increasing. And when that happens, when this filtering, this scavenging mechanism is not sufficient, um, then cellular damage and mitochondrial damage is imminent and chronic disease processes are imminent. So it's practically the biological 
damage that deterrence can deliver, those those are more like a, an elephant in, a, in or a bull in a, in a China store, China China shop, simply because they just destroy all moving proteins, especially rapidly moving proteins. And for that matter, their amount, their concentration needs to be very tightly regulated um, um, in the physiological range. Yeah, so that even a one, two, three ppm difference is is pretty substantial, basically, is what you're saying. Yeah, so, so just give you, give you an example. If you talk to a physicist, they're going to give you the deuterium concentration in per meal value, meaning that they are not using percentage. They use... Per meal, meaning that they use a thousand protons and measure the deuterons among a thousand. It's not in a hundred, it's a thousand because they have to measure this so sensitively because it's, it has such a biological impact that they have to multiply the scale that they use to measure this by 10 simply because they want to know even those miniature changes are so dramatic and so important in determining the age of a biological sample, um, of determining a um, water source from different, uh, you know, geographical or geophysics phenomenon. Um, they, that's how they determine the source of, of drugs, for example, where they are from. These stabilized patterns are very descriptive, meaning that very characteristic, characteristic of the biological or physics or the source of those uh, organic uh, materials. So practically one ppm is, is, if you talk to a geophysicist, is such a big change that they would actually use a different scale to actually even um, kind of tune finely into that change simply just to understand uh, more of the physics or the, the reactions that contribute to those changes. And it's, it's quite a, uh, uh, an interesting and intriguing science deuteronomics just to see this stabilized dope high behaves on the on our planet and obviously other planets as well because that's how they use uh, that's how they determine water source intergalactic um mm. composite atomic compositions if mars can be populated by humans deuterium is a, is, is a huge factor because there are more deuterium in in the ice caps of, of Mars, as I understand. And, and they actually measure deuterium in Saturn, um, water, and the moons, practically. It's, it's, uh, it's, if you look at not only the biology, but the physics and the biophysics of it, it's, it's really a very influential. So, so it seems like they're pretty aware of it then. Like, why, why has nobody been talking about this in, in the mainstream if, if they're looking for this on, on other planets? Are, are they just making sure that, you know, it's not like 200, 300 ppm in the water or something like that? Or? Well, because you can't make much money out of it. You know, it's, it's, okay. everything is money driven. They don't care as long as, uh, you know, it's just some, first of all, you, it's not a, like a, like financially very, very beneficial operation to take something out 
instead of adding some like a supplement, you know, buy, oh, yeah. you know, cost this much or that. If if Patent if you pharmaceutical. take yeah, it's yeah. For example, it's it's a very different kind of mindset. And we, we, we are on our own. I mean, you guys run an independent radio, so we can cover, I guess, all kind of aspect of it. But um, it's you need to be aware of that, especially in, in medicine, pharmaceutical operations. They want to sell something to you, meaning oh, yeah. that it has to be a supplement. It has to be a drug. It has to be something that they can put in a box. They can label it all kind of fancy stuff. They can take it to the television. They can advertise it for you, and then you're going to buy it. Deuteronomics or deuterium depletion is is not like that. I can't really give you a pill that would deplete your deuterium, but I can give you some ideas where to buy your meat source, where to buy your food source, what to drink, how much to drink, why to drink, when to drink or eat, and how to sleep, what kind of exercise patterns, what kind of nutritional protocols, what what kind of lifestyle you have to uh, pursue to to actually control your deuterium in, in the physiological range and not to get sick for that matter. Yeah. So and, it's a different kind of mindset and business. Yeah, yeah that, and that's the mindset we have right here on this show and, and everything yes, I talk indeed. about. It's, 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 it's crazy and, and sad. And I'm curious to get your opinion maybe on the funding of research. But before we talk about that, um, yeah, let's talk about the food a little bit because that seems to me like the biggest gains people can make. And it's funny because it's right in line with a lot of what's kind of gotten a lot of traction, right? The, the keto carnivore movement has definitely proliferated in popularity and and it's funny cuz you know nobody's talking about deuterium really at the at the, the diet level and and I've done some YouTube videos on you know hidden benefits that of carnivore and keto that that no one's talking about and definitely deuterium depletion is one of them and it's pretty substantial so I think it's a combination of, of your work Gabor's work but from what I've read from eating kind of a low carb diet you can make uh, mitochondrial water as low as like what one eighteen ppm and ppm, and then if you're eating like a Western diet, it's it's not even going to be that deuterium depleted at all. It's going to be like one one fifty one fifty five. Are you interested in one hundred percent grass fed, grass finished bison meat? I'm excited to be a partner with Falls Family Ranches, based in Wyoming. Falls Family Ranches is raising high quality bison meat the way nature intended. As a native large ruminant of North America, bison is one of the most nutrient-dense foods you can consume. If you're interested in trying out their bison boxes, use code TRISTAN, T-R-I-S-T-A-N, 10, for 10% off your first order. Is that yeah, correct? So, yeah, that's right. So fat or, or, or ACL chains just... To serve both the the common kind of lay audience and also, you know, uh, people who are scientifically um, um, more interested in this whole process, fat uh, is low in deuterium because fat or fatty acids are produced from citrate, which is formed in mitochondria in low deuterium environment. So naturally, all fat in natural environments, natural feeding habits grass-fed and also carnivore lifestyle, 
the fat part of your food is also low in deuterium. So when you burn it into metabolic water, it's going to provide you low deuterium metabolic matrix water. And that is necessary for your mitochondrial health. Besides that, fat is more saturated with hydrogens per carbon, meaning that it produces more, twice as much um, heavy hydrogen or twice as much um, um, metabolic water than what you can produce from, from carbohydrates. Now, carbohydrates are produced from uh, various other uh, precursors, especially um, in plants during photosynthesis. And there is a, a big difference between fat and um, carbohydrate um, uh, uh, deuterium sources, uh, and Gabor Shomiai uh, published a paper, I believe, uh, a year ago, where actually he um, published, he, he reports food, food deuterium content. And uh, our collaboration was so fruitful simply because we could um, determine the source of deuterium depleted water in biological systems and based on the nutritional and fat-based um, dieting habits, we could predict what kind of deuterium depleted water your mitochondria will produce and we could link this scenario with health-related issues or therapeutic so, so efforts. So quick question there, how correlated is that? Like if I eat a piece of grass-fed meat that's like 130 ppm, you know, is it just going to produce like 130 ppm metabolic water or is there a kind of a variation? Because that, that was my kind of only well, thing that I wasn't from, sure about. Obviously, it's very correlated in terms of how low and high it is. Yeah, so what you want to eat is the fat part, fatty meat, at least 50-60% mm. fat content, and the rest is proteins and very little carbohydrates. Um, in the 118-110 ppm range, that's the grass-fat, natural butter, and so on. Gabor's paper have this data, and uh, uh, that's what can actually supply deuterium-free metabolic water in your mitochondrial matrix because your glycolysis and your biochemical reactions can get rid of this much of deuterium, 118 ppm. I'm just giving you a number. It probably okay. needs to be below 120 ppm. In, in grass-fed uh, cow fat, uh, tallow, um, uh, ghee, um, those are in the 110, 100 ppm range. So from from this grass-fed natural um, fat source, you can produce deuterium-free or very low deuterium, a few ppm uh, matrix water because your body has glycolysis and uh, uh, isomerases that can actually scavenge, that can actually get rid of deuterium from the fat source, uh, fat-related intermediary metabolites, and also from from carbohydrates uh, somewhat. And because of these ratios, the carbohydrate, low carbohydrates are low deuterium, practically preventing deuterium to entering your system. So it's not the deuterium content, but how much of high and low deuterium containing substrates you consume. How, mm -hmm. What's the ratio of carbohydrates versus fat in your food? Practically that determines your deuterium load. 
and how, what's the water retained content that you consume. Now, if you look at anthropology, uh, four, four million years ago, um, and this was a, a big finding for me, papers that published um, uh, that actually the prehistoric man was able to open the school of large plant-eating animals and start eating bone marrow fat. That's, that's what humans were eating and conserving for themselves uh, for millions of years. And uh, evolutionary, if you want to say it, or the, how the creator planned this is practically these prehistoric men were able to go in a ketogenic to TM-depleted diet, which provides nutritional ketosis and metabolic ketosis with low deuterium, and they were able to evolve or adapt to um, to low deuterium um, biological habitats or faunas, if 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 you will, and they were able to develop uh, brain skills. Uh, fine motor movements, fine um, kind of hand speech. Um, uh, they were able to use their body in a low detrim environment in a more flexible, more expressive, and in a more complicated, complex way in as far as memory, as far as communications, as far as social behaviors, and so on. And that was all dependent on low-fat ketogenic diets that they were obtaining from large plant-eating animals' carcasses. Now, the other advantage of this is that they didn't have to chase, they didn't have to hunt, they didn't have to be exposed to predatory animals by competing for these, um, while competing for these preys. They just waited till the predators left and the scavengers left and the bones were kind of cleaned up for them just to break through those bones using stones, stone tools. That's what they found in this Ethiopian um, 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 uh, land uh, where they found these uh, 3.8 to 4 million years old uh, carcasses, bone bone structures of large plant-eating animals that were actually broken into using mm using tools. So if you look at, a, uh, for example, a mammoth, um, or if you look at like uh, large plant-eating animals, they have, what, 20 kilograms of bone marrow in any of those big bones. So, so those were actually very reliable, good, untouched food sources. They just had to learn how to use tools to get to this ketogenic low um fat source. And the predators left because they were not interested in the carcass. The scavengers left, the ancient uh, kind of the cavemen's hyenas and the tigers and the predators left by then. And the humans were, the prehistoric humans were left with these carcasses and a lot of fat, a lot of the tomb um, depleted ketogenic food source. So as our natural metabolic profile is ketosis. They could maintain ketosis during the day, low ketosis. This is what we should do, by the way. This is our natural uh, 
metabolic state, and they were able to adapt to various tasks, and they were able to solve various tasks and form more complex social patterns without being threatened by um, um, or competing with with predator uh, uh, predator animals. In the meantime, agriculture came along about 10,000 years ago, and they started cultivating plants that are higher in deuterium. They formed larger communities, and they started harvesting plants and started eating plants. And that's where chronic diseases, and that's where diseases appeared um, in mass scales, as we know. And, and this is when infectious diseases appeared also, because infectious diseases also depend on deuterium for the propagation of infectious agents. And changing diets, changing um, uh, dieting behaviors changed the, the, the disease landscape on mankind and societies, and we ended up where we are now. We practically, well, I'm not, but um, most of the people eat processed food. And if you look at the kind of the general health or the chronic disease epidemics taking place um, on this entire planet, you can tell there is a huge devastating change and uh Practically, it's because of the environmental exposure and also the food. They don't eat or the f- kind of food industry does not measure deuterium. They don't really label deuterium and they don't really care. They don't really care about deuterium, meaning that practically you're, you're left alone. You have to figure out yourself where to find low deuterium food source and those are grass fed. Um, animal fat. Practically, we are scavengers. If you could, if you look at ancient writings, you know when Noe walks off the ark, uh, Lord tells him that eat meat. Uh, when you look at Cain Ka- Ka- and, and Abel's story, Cain, the plant grower, kills the animal. Um, um, the past, the guy who 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 produces animal um, nutritional kind of guidelines and, and grows animals and, and raises animals for, for their own fooding and, you know, providing this for the Lord as a sacrifice. And um, when you look at the, <clears throat> the acts of the apostles, then you can see that the, the, the Lord provides a whole plate of, of meat. So practically changing this in ancient writings, you can actually go back to, more like the historic source of this or the ancient knowledge of this um, as how it's described in these ancient books. But for our current times and going back in anthropology, you can see the overarching trends in changing dieting, changing food source, changing agricultural processes and human health in general. And by, 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 by now, you can see the devastating trends simply from going from natural grass-fed food sources to industry-based uh, GMO crops and, and animals that are actually uh, fed with these GMO crops. The animals are sick. Humans are sick in general. 
unfortunately. And it's, it seems that it, 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 it all depends on nutrition. It all depends on mitochondrial matrix functions and it all depends on the tomb loads to break those nanomotors and start these metabolic crowding process that is practically the fundamental biochemical event behind all these undesired um, epidemiological chronic disease epidemics and, uh, you know, the deterioration of human health and life expectancy after all. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's spot on, right? I don't have any qualms with that, really. I think everyone's pretty much in agreement that we just so many people eat way too much junk food, processed food, and even the carbohydrates, right? The carbohydrates today, they're not even, even in the fruit form, let's say, um, they're not really indicative of fruit that would have existed even 100 years ago, 200 years ago. If you go and pick like wild berries or something, you know, they're they're very, very low, oh, low in size and and thus probably lower in deuterium content uh, as well. So the only question I have is because I've recently interviewed Michael uh, A. Crawford, who's an expert in um, brain evolution and, and DHA fatty acids. So his, his theory is, is basically that we um, evolved um, by eating lots of seafood and the ruminants, like that combination of high DHA, um, the vital minerals from the seafood as well as the vital nutrients um, from uh, land ruminants. So my question is, is there a substantial difference in saturated versus polyunsaturated fatty acids in terms of de- uh, deuterium content, like say DHA versus um, stearic acid, for example? Uh, it could be, and it, uh, uh, there's a French group scientist, they measured the tomb content in saturated, unsaturated fat um, uh, of industrial and also natural sources. You, so you can find some original data. If you read our paper in Medical Hypotheses about the carbon, uh, about the proton exchange reactions in the, t- the, the Sanjuri-Krebs cycle, um, then you, you can see these uh, scenarios, how they play out. But, but practically, um, once fat is generated, saturated or unsaturated, they are in the range of the lower deuterium kind yeah. of arena. So it's below 120. I'm just giving you this number comparing to carbohydrates. When you look at carbohydrates, they are all above 135, 140 ppm. So you, you're looking at a gap of... Um, 10, 15 ppm between proteins, carbohydrates, and fat. Um, and based on what plant or what animal is producing that particular fat and where it is produced, there could be another 15 ppm differences, mm-hmm. but it's below the 130, 125 range. So you go from... If you look at carbohydrates, you go from 138 to 155. If you look at fat, you go from 125, and that's the highest end, down to like maybe 95 when you look at some of those, um, um, you know, truly natural-based, grass-fed, saturated, long-chain animal fat sources. So is the is the number of carbons like you're saying the long chain is the number of carbons uh, kind of more correlated with with lower uh, deuterium then? 
it it well actually I know it's correlated to higher is, ATP production, right? Yeah, so. the so the the way we kind of differentiate fatty acids, there are short chains. Those are four, mm-hmm. six, eight carbons. There are medium chains. They go from eight carbons to fourteen carbons, and there are long chains. There are palmitate, stearate, oleate, and so on. Those go above twenty carbon so the the cut is not that clear so there's uh, short chains eight carbons and there are medium chains like 16 carbons and then above and uh, longer the chain is that means more acetate units these are two two carbon units that's how fatty acids are built and from fatty acid synthase over 16 carbons fatty acid chain elongase takes place. These are enzymes that produce these fatty acids and they operate um, using different um, deuterium um, scavenging and deuterium um, uh, capturing or deuterium discriminating mechanisms. It's a very complex biochemical kind of scenario. That's why I don't want to go into details, but practically you go uh, actually, in Saget, I gave a few talks about fatty acid synthase back in uh, 2014, um, where actually we did, I described these processes. But um, it's in and between those 95 to 120 ppm range when we look at fatty acid saturated long chain um, or saturated unsaturated fatty acids. They are in between those yeah. two numbers somewhere and the specifics you kind of have to measure and then you have to think over the biochemical reactions that contributed to those fatty acids. But if it's a natural source grass fat or natural source fatty acid that is synthesized from grass fat animals or modified in our system, because that's what peroxisomes do, they modify these fatty acids, they align mm-hmm. them, the liver assembles these, these triglycerides and they are, there are low density, high density as far as their, detum, uh, as far as their protein content is and or apo lipoproteins as how we characterize them. But practically every cycle changes the detum, um content. But it, if it's, it, it has to, it cannot be, uh, coming from a sick animal that was put in artificial uh, feeding protocols and even their fat content is 135, 140 ppm. So it's not any different than eating carbohydrates. Yeah. So so the grain-fed grain animals, obviously, yeah, that, yeah, that makes yeah. a ton of sense. But I, I'm curious yeah. from like, you know, DHA from an Alaskan <laughs> caught salmon versus like Soybean Those are oil, actually good right? low source yeah. of deuterium. Yeah, yeah. Ver- Those are salmon is yeah. the salmon. The salmon we measure. We have a large database. Um, okay. Which I I do consult on my website, and you can kind of to I can look into these. There. Yeah. Say say it again. I'll have to dive down that. I, I, I've looked yeah. for it um, before, but yeah. Yeah, it's, we, it's, we can, I can go into this database. I cannot share because uh, okay. um, it's practically a discovery process based on specific interests. But um, yeah, we can kind of uh, consult on these topics um, because it's, those are very fundamental and very important 
knowledge. Yeah, it's it, it's just like polyun- polyunsaturated fats have gotten a really bad rep. And they've been grouped together, but it's like DHA from salmon is not the same as linoleic acid from soybean oil. And I bet you that that has way higher deuterium content. So yeah, that'd be cool. Any any we measure those actually. So we are looking at data here. We 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 have original isotope ratio, isotope ratio mass spectrometry measurements, and uh, we we do have those numbers, but they they always have to be put in the context of like what the nutritional goal, what is the amount, what are the ratios, what is the source? Because the problem is if you buy, for example, me especially, I mean, where is it from? You know, what was it raised? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So the problem with fatty acids is that fatty acids can go into your mitochondria directly through mm-hmm. the carnitine ACL transport chain. It doesn't have mm-hmm. to go through glycolysis. Yep. Glycolysis is practically created as a set of reactions to check each and every proton on a carbohydrate, on a sugar, on a glucose or a fructose molecule that you consume using um, fruits or eating fruits. Um, those uh, glyco- reactions of glycos is going to remove every hydrogen, every proton from your carbohydrate and replace it with proton that is coming from your metabolic water or cytoplasmic water. It's practically a, a proton exchange, set of proton exchange reactions. That's why glycosis takes 10 steps. Yeah. To check that's every carbon. That's why the TCA's Krebs cycle is so intricately detailed. For yeah, us. that starts the exchange process. Now, the carbohydrates have to be checked before carbohydrates source pyruvate or acetylcoenzyme A joins the TCA cycle. It has to be ripped off of all deuterium there is, as long as it's not too high, meaning that it overflows the system. And that's what happens in grain-fed animals. Mm. Even their fat content, even their fat is not low in deuterium enough to preserve or prevent your mitochondria to break. And fatty acids shoot right into the mitochondria if it's 18, if they are 18 or or 16 chain length and uh, through the carnitine transport system, and they start burning in the mitochondria and loading mitochondria with deuterium. And there is chronic disease, yeah. metabolic diseases, metabolic crowding. And for that matter, you have to know the source, these numbers, and be in a more like in a in the safe zone or the same safe range when you consume fat because those can actually shoot right into your um, mitochondria. Those are like the... When you go to the airport, the diplomacy kind of boot is over there, and those guys just they kind of (laughs) they just flip their thingy and they just shoot right through that. Those are fatty acids, and you know we as like passengers we have to wait the line and um, waiting line. So that's the difference between carbohydrates and fat 
fatty yeah. acids, how they shoot into the mitochondria. So they, that's why I have to, you have to be very careful what kind of fat source you consume. Yeah, it's so interesting as well, as, especially if you dive into just like the adaptation of the mitochondria from like a higher FADH2 to NADH ratio. But we don't, we don't need to get into that. So the diet you know, These are very good arguments. I'm sorry. Yeah. These are very important, very critical, yeah. very good arguments. So keep reading. You have questions. Call me, write me, and, and we'll dig it in. Well, it's fascinating to be on the frontier of this research. And I think from the food perspective, it's really simple. It's what, you know, we preach, right? Like eat local, high quality animal foods as the center of your diet and local, especially important seasonal, but you can verify the quality most important. And, um, you know, carbohydrates, you limit them. Obviously, if you eat local and seasonal, they'd probably be only available certain times of year anyway. But more importantly, um, something I wanted to ask, something I've been curious about is dairy because I've heard mixed things. Raw milk has become really popular in the uh, you know alternative health space, the primal health diet realm. And I've heard things saying that you know milk because it's given to you know for growth to infants and babies is actually high in deuterium content and this is an argument that why we shouldn't consume it but then i've also heard the opposite so no better person to ask than you and this would probably be the last food related question <laughs> well again dairy is has obviously a special raw, raw pasture milk is probably really different from pasteurized feedlot grain-fed milk so yeah, it's it's. I'll tell you, this is actually a very good question. And I I get this simply because uh, you know, after all, it's very fundamental and it clarifies some very basics of deuteronomics. And that is, um, it's very unusual that any species would drink <laughs> the dairy of another species because it only has one purpose, and that's practically in. Just look at humans. If you have a, a, a baby uh, in the first year of their life using and eating just breast milk, they actually triple their body weight. They go mm-hmm. from, what, 3 kilograms to ten, close to 10 kilograms. And it takes the tomb to develop those structural proteins, uh, collagen, grow bones, make them stronger, those tendons, those. So in, in the growing body, in the developing body, and the continuously dividing cells and differentiating cells, deuterium has a special role. And so is the food has a special role in supplying and providing those needs for physiological purposes. After you pass your suckling age or you kind of wean off of this, you start eating, you know, animal-based f- f- food or, 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 or food products. For example, what your mom is cooking for you, you know, first just to do those little small cut pieces of, of meat and fat and so on. This is how we were raised. This is how we grew up. Those little pieces of sausages, you know, those little little thingies on your plate, and the babies are learning how to eat those as well. Then you 
you stop drinking milk for for them because it becomes insufficient to supply the energy and the structural needs for it. So you have to start eating more substantial. You have to eat more as you grow. So you, your mom or your <clears throat> your um, if we, if we talk about animals, then the cows, they stop producing milk. So milk is produced simply because they milk the cow every day. So the, yep. the cow thinks that steer has a, a, a little calf that needs to feed. So otherwise the, the, the milk production would stop. So for that matter, and I'm just going to plug in my computer, I apologize. No problem. And for that matter... Uh, dairy is not for human consumption. I mean, period. If you um, look at um, lions, uh, for example, um, hunting, um, you know, zebra horses, and the zebra horses is a <clears throat> um, a zebra horse, a female that is that is producing milk. The lions never let their offsprings to actually have that milk. Practically they 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 just direct their their babies to eat the the meat and fat if they are old enough to eat. It's really unusual for any species to drink milk, especially from cows that are sick already, with <laughs> high cell numbers, there was a grain fad those were fed with artificial, actually cow would never eat soybeans. Practically they never eat corn. They, they love corn when it's this tall and it's still green. If it's a green plant, they eat the corn plant. They don't eat the corn. Um, uh, the, the corn back then was very different than now these GMO grown corns. I mean, there's, if you look at the cow, Nowadays, for example, a Holstein farm, you go to a Holstein farm, there are industrial kind of, you know, grain fat. Mm -hmm. They only have a lifespan of five years. Um, they're for their last years, practically, they're barely alive. They are very sick and they just, they maybe have two offsprings and they, they have two calves and they produce what? 30, 40 liters of milk a day, and then they have to butcher them because those animals are, are, are unable to live any longer. Well, if you look at, for, for example, um, Dejo Somor, who is my good friend in Hungary, and he, <clears throat> he actually uh, raises uh, Hungarian gray cows, water buffaloes out in the pasture. Um, he's, what do you think? How old is his oldest cow? 20 years. 34 years old. Wow. That's pretty good. With, with 25 calves. Yeah. Yeah. Not two calves. And, and those Holstein uh, cows, they have to be pulled off of a, uh, uh, on, onto the plateau of a truck and have to be oh, taken yeah. to because they can't walk anymore. It's and so that's sad. the milk that you're drinking. And that's the, well, I'm not. But that's that's what the dairy these days. Yeah. So mainstream dairy. Yeah. Mainstream dairy. So we wrote a paper about this in metabolomics, which compares the metabolic and the disease state of the grass fat and the grain fat 
cows based on published data in the literature and it's in metabolomics. So if you want to read more about it, that's the what to feed or what not to feed. right? Exactly. What to feed, what not to feed. Yeah. Yeah. I read, I read that is is fascinating, but I, I just, I'm not shy. Yeah. I had to ask the dairy question because the, yeah, of course that's very, yeah. Very critical, very important (laughs) question. Right. If you have to mm-hmm. grow, obviously, I would imagine the deuterium content would be pretty high um, in some. Yeah, yeah, that. those. Yeah, we measure those. Um, just so, just for from from your perspective, if you compare um, sour cream or 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 butter from grass fed cows compared to grain fed cows if you compare to what, those 15 two, ppm difference 20 uh, so uh, you go from 110 to 136 wow so yeah 26 yeah. wow that's incredible. 26 ppm yes listen it's not a joke yeah i mean it, it's not just something just to walk by and say oh well whatever uh, it is significant, and it, when it comes to human health and animal health, or, or just planetary health, or just practically chronic disease epidemics, you have to take these into consideration, unfortunately. Yeah, 100%. Well, thanks for entertaining that. Um, I think it's important. And again, it's the quality of the food, the quality of the animal that you're eating matters tremendously. And we even know this proven via metabolomics from the nutrient density perspective. We've talked to Stefan von Fleet on this show. So it's we now have the data to prove the logical conclusions that the quality of the animal you're eating matters. And now with this deuterium information, it shows you how even more so that matters. But I guess the next piece is that really can make a difference on is is the water you drink. And wow, what a weird what a weird weird world we live in where everyone's going to the gym, walking around with, you know, like two liter, one gallon water bottles or no dead water that's probably super heavy in deuterium and not hydrating their cells at all. They're mitochondria dysfunctional. They're not making the right metabolic water. So I know listening to your podcast with, I think it was Dr. Anthony Chafee, you said that you pretty much never, you drink as little water as possible. And then when you do. No, I I only drink when I'm thirsty. Yeah, yeah. You you basically. And I drink as much as water is necessary to kill my thirst. And that's usually rainwater below 125 ppm. It's very simple. Got it. And. You have thirst. Are you sourcing that in a specific way or are you mixing that with deuterium depleted water? It's deuterium depleted, but it's in the rain kind of a good. Far rain, hundred twenty-five ppm or below. That's okay. that's practically tap water is hundred forty-three ppm to hundred fifty-five ppm. Um, most of the major cities, um, if it's coming, if it's coming from the from higher elevations, from for example the Colorado River, it may go down to hundred thirty-eight ppm. But it's still very high when you drink two or three liters of it a day. Yeah. So you know, yeah, the, that's the problem what I is to get into the elevation and then the latitude. Yeah. Right, is I mean, I, I tell you, w- w- with my buddies uh, from my church, we went up to the Carpathian to 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 take a walk. We walked up to like three thousand meters, and so as we arrived at the parking lot, 
my friends, they came with a backpack with a kind of a water sipping. Oh, yeah. I hate those. You know, they actually, actually, and they were asking me if I had any water. So I know I don't. And they said, well, (laughs) it's going to be an eight hours walk up and down. I said, yeah, that's fine. And I ate my two or three pieces of bacon before that. And I just put my boots on and we just walked. Yeah. And so they were asking me if I, if I'm like want to drink of their water. I said, well, listen, if I'm thirsty, there's this beautiful mountain stream. river, yeah, the stream yeah. coming down. That's where all the living creatures drink here. I consider myself one of them. So if I'm thirsty, I just kind of, you know, if I'm that thirsty, I kind of like um, pushing the a limit. little, huh? Yeah. Put, I, you I like to, to push the, the limit, the challenge. Yeah, I, yeah, I yeah. you know, I, I consider everything that you put in your body as a deuterium source, potentially. So you have to kind of, if you don't know the deuterium content, you have to limit the intake. So for that matter, and the, the other problem is with excessive water drinking without salt is that osmolarity will drop in your blood. Osmolarity will drop in your brain cells. So you, you, you will actually have brain swelling that dismantles the hypophysis or the pituitary gland has a, it's sucked, it's actually locked into your cella torsica, which is a bony little compartment. That's where this organ, this pituitary gland sits in. And if you drink water excessively, this gland kind of expands in this bony uh, capture or, or it's capsizing this bony compartment called cella torsica or the turkey saddle for that matter because it looks like one and actually start compressing on ADH releasing cells the anti-diuretic hormone release and also sex hormone and goat hormone mm. and thyroid hormone regulating cells because they are all produced by the pituitary gland so if those are swollen then your anti-diuretic hormone is not helping you to preserve water so you develop diabetes insipidus and you have to drink more because you are more thirsty simply because you are unable to salvage water through the actions of anti-diuretic hormone which prevents diuresis it actually retains water uh, from your primary filtrate in your kidneys so you cannot regulate your own water homeostasis so you're actually exposed to a environmental unpredictable deuterium source in the form of water and causing brain. Actually, you can actually die of water poisoning. Mm-hmm. You can die of brain swelling. In New Jersey, I believe early summer, there was a uh, mother who took the kids on a mountain um, uh, walk and, and she drank about a liter and a half in 15 minutes by the time she drove the car back, she fell into a coma and she died in the garage. Wow. So it's, it's, it's um, excessive water drinking without thirst is causing more harm that you can actually imagine. And yeah. it's simply because of your body has your thirst 
or any other natural signal. For example, if you're hungry, you eat. If you are tired, and then you sleep. If you're thirsty, then you drink. If you are kind of, you know, and sexuality is controlled pretty much the same way. So we have these basic instincts that's practically just, you don't, you don't go to sleep simply because you see a sofa bed somewhere. You don't eat just because you walk by a restaurant. You don't eat just because it's available. You don't, uh, and you shouldn't be drinking just because there is bottled water in the department store. And you can, and you heard on the radio that you should drink two or three liters of water because it's a good business for the um, water, the the water industry, the the bottled water, you know, the the bottled water industry. Actually, if you drink excessively, like let's say a liter of water in half in in half an hour, you're gonna pee out one point three liters of water in the next four hours for sure, but it's gone in, in the next two hours practically. So it's it's useless. Your body is trying to get rid of it simply because it didn't need it. So you are constantly challenging your body to kind of overcome your behavioral patterns simply that are physiologically, biochemically, totally against your own regu- regulatory systems. Those are over driven by media, by advertisements, by, and the list just goes on and on. And, and that's, that's our kind of scientific position on this whole issue. Yeah, I love it. I mean, I'm the same way. I like went hunting in Wyoming um, and I actually forgot to bring water at all. And I was just like, oh, I just bring my, I have my water bottle. I'll just fill up at a stream if I get thirsty. And it's not that hot either. So I, and I have buddies I've done these big hikes with. They all bring the camelbacks and, and they just get comfortable. They get used to just sipping on the camelback, the yeah. water or backpack, like every five minutes. They're like, yeah, it's, yeah. it's just something you psychologically get used to. And, mm-hmm. you know, the same people, they have their big jug and they just sipping, mm-hmm. sipping, sipping. It's it's just like they get used to that. So that's that feedback loop they're in. And, it's, it, yeah, it's hard to break, but I, I challenge everyone. I think, A, first off, drink water that's actually alive, spring water, and then something that um, mm-hmm. you don't really need as much of um, if you ch- challenge yourself. Obviously, if you're in a sauna or you're really – 35 C out and you're sweating profusely. It's a different story, but every day we're not really sweating that much needing to drinking. That yeah. Much listen, water. if, if, if you're thirsty, uh, drink as much as it's necessary. When we were kids, we went out on these school trips and I remember teachers telling us when we were like, Oh, I'm thirsty. I'm thirsty. I said, just don't drink. Don't drink. If you are still thirsty in five minutes, wait five minutes. <laughs> then you cap. Then you get one little sip. That's it. And actually, it was it was sufficient just to. Well, we were lean. We were not like uh, as obese as nowadays. These mm-hmm. kids, unfortunately, if you look at their average body composition, I still have what. 14%, 15% fat content of my body. And I just keep these 
you know, if, if I go to a, I'm 62 now, and if I go to a, a re, reunion, God, I mean, some of my friends just like, okay, um, actually we're going to go and uh, um, say, you know, the final goodbye to my guitar player in high school, you know, we started and same age, same, and, and, and we're going to bury him on Friday. Oh. And I mean, just one problem after another. It's really sad. And, and the U.S., I think, is even worse than, you know, in Hungary or in Europe. But well, it's, well it's, unfortunately, we are getting there. Yeah, it's, it's all in the same trajectory, really. But something that, you know, is easy to do. But again, Laszlo, people are not going to... They want the pill. They want the easy fix. I mean, most listeners to our show know that the lifestyle interventions, the decentralized health model is, is the most effective. Obviously, it's the longer lasting solutions. Um, there is no Band-Aid or, or supplement that's yeah. going to provide yeah. you. Yeah, this, and, and it's very important, Tristan, what you guys do, especially for, for your age group. I'm an old guy now, so I don't really have as much as like think ahead of you guys mm-hmm. do as far as how, t- I mean, knock on wood, I'm okay. I'm 62 and I'm happy it's, it's that way. And I wish everybody would be in this situation. Um, I know how to kind of preserve this option or possibility. It's, it's all through food and, and lifestyle. There's yeah. no, I don't take any supplements. Yeah, I don't so, take any special remedy for, you know, preserving this type of, you know. Yeah, no, and and that's how I am now too. And I was just going to ask quickly because the deuterium depleted water is, you know, it is accessible for people, and I know they have as low as. I don't know if it's 10 or 20 ppm and you can use that to mix to like 100, 120, maybe 130. Is that something you advocate for, you know, the everyday person trying to be healthier if they can't get, um, let's say, a lower deuterium content water? Or do you really only see that as kind of a medical intervention for those, say, with with cancer or with a serious health issue? Yeah, there are therapeutic applications below 100 ppm. Okay. Yeah, that, that, for those you need to be, you need to go to a integrative setting and you talk to, you need to talk to doctors who are familiar with this deuterium story. And for that matter, it's practically just a, um, lifestyle. The safest water is what you eat, is not what you drink. And your body makes the safest water for you. How to deplete water the easiest. Just eat, you know, grass-fed animal fat. Because I get a lot of questions. Is like, is rainwater, can I set up my own deuterium depleting machine? Can I do this? Can I do that? I'm like, listen, no, just go to the grass-fed food store, get some fat, and that's your fastest water. So you don't have to buy anything. It's cheaper. Just too. eat. Yeah. It's much cheaper. It, 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 it actually makes you like live free of this establishment. You don't have to go to doctors. You don't have to go to clothing stores. You don't have to buy medicines. You don't have to spend time in doctor's offices. You don't have to drive there. You don't have to pay. It's it's much cheaper after all, if you yeah. just look at this whole scenario. 
that that initial investment, you know, for that low time preference. But yeah, that's that's fantastic. I guess you know, it's really it always comes down to the same things, and um, that lifestyle habit really drives your your health outcomes. And um, yeah, at the end of the day, I think adding this deuterium message is on top of everything that that we talk about as well. It, it aligns very well. But I'm excited to see more and more of this this research come out and you know read your paper on on the mountaineering as, as well. It's it's all related. It all comes back to mitochondrial health, I think, at the end of the day. So yeah, I guess, you know, wrapping up, what what are you most excited about to to research or coming to fruition in this space or other aspects maybe of, of quantum biology or kind of this frontier of research and in the Fringe, yeah, I, I guess. I'm kind of in a kind of a interesting situation because I do a lot of editing work for scientific journals, and I invite mm-hmm. reviewers for. And deterpretation is practically the deuterium angle interpretation of medical data. This is what we do now mm. in many of those papers. I get lots of data. I have Stephanie Senef, uh, Antonis uh, Kyriakopoulos, if I say it right, he's a Greek physician, colleague and friend of mine. Um, and I work with a number of other scientists, um, especially with the, when there is a need for it. Um, and uh, I actually get a lot of questions, data that I can position and I can kind of explain from the deuteronomics angle and 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 that's fun I mean it's serious scientific work and it requires a lot of background biochemical biochemistry knowledge and there's a lot of discovery uh, I love corresponding with Dr. Roman Zubarev who is at the Karolinska Institute he published a paper about the gray seals and the peregrine falcons having 315 PPM uh, proline-based deuterium accumulation in their collagen. It's practically the physical forces they have to endure. It's wow. a phenotypic uh, uh, data. It's in the Journal of the of the American Chemical Society. Um, I just wanted to ask about pro- proline real quick because I forgot. Um, you know, I've listened. I think it was Stephanie Sneff who mentioned that proline can kind of it traps that, and that aligns with what you're saying. Is once proline has deuterium in its structure, it's mm-hmm. it's not going anywhere. Is that a good or like a bad thing? Yeah, I started kind of delivering this paper and information to Dr. Seneff and so on, so yeah, we can yeah. actually get her expertise and so on. Many of these dots are kind of the first little. Kind yeah, they're, of drawing they're just being, is, is yeah, started by us, by me, simply because I'm kind of. They look at me like the the the, the go to guy when it comes to mm-hmm. deuteronomics. So, and I'm very happy to work with everybody because every kind of different angle, look, eyes just help to uncover all these stories. And Dr. Senef, she made a lot of contributions on her side. And actually, she knows more about protein-related deuteration than I do now, even though I started kind yeah, of this yeah, type yeah. of discussion as well. But she dug into this. Um, we together did, but I have not reviewed yet many of the materials that we did. 
um, collected, and most of those come from her searches. So her contributions are very critical and fundamental and very original to this matter. Um, we don't know all the details yet to give you kind of very insightful, easy to understand uh, comments or or opinion, but maybe in a few months we'll be able yeah. to cover that as well. But ask Dr. Senef because um, she she will she will have very clear answers to some. Yeah, of no, questions. and yeah. it really just goes along with I think maybe the question to her was like, how can you clear out like high levels of deuterium? But the way you know the mitochondrial turnover is so high, it's like if you change your diet, um, you're probably going to be getting de- deuterium depleted water out of the mitochondria pretty, pretty quickly. So I don't, it's not something. Um, and, and maybe she was, she was tying that into glyphosate anyway as well. So I'll definitely ask her about that, but I yeah, guess listen, so, they are all connected because yeah, glyphosate yeah. destroys oxygen carrying capacity of red blood cells. Then mitochondrial oxygen supplies are not sufficient to produce enough metabolic water. There's the team depleted. Yep. But I mean, I can go on and on and we can do this. <laughs> We don't, we don't, we can do it forever. And it's just so interesting. But yeah, uh, the, it's last, very interesting. the last question I have is, is how is the research, I guess the funding for, for all this going? Cause I know that's a struggle in more of these alternative research spaces that aren't very profitable. And, and it's something I'm interested in maybe helping out on uh, or trying to find a way because there's things um, like. Listen, I stopped applying for grants, <laughs> scientific grants in 2003. I, some 32 grant proposals were triaged by the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, by those quote-unquote reviewers. It's a club of people. If you kiss enough ass around, <laughs> then I guess you can get your funding for some bullshit studies. So, I mean, that's what oncology in general. I'm just giving you a yeah, kind yeah. of a broad picture of how it goes. And... Uh, I was working as a subcontractee of those big funded projects because we could provide tracer-based, 13-C-isotope-based, deuterium-based, very precise metabolic profiling scenarios. And so we got our funding indirectly. They Mm. never funded directly our research, but indirectly we could. We published over 100 papers in the peer-reviewed medical literature, um, we are very well established using these scenarios. And if you are not greedy, meaning that a Nissan Sentra is okay, you don't have to drive a Porsche and you don't have to have a, who knows, you know, big size of a house or you just want to rent. Like I'm, I'm really not, um, Financially, I'm not interested in science. I'm interested in science because of science itself. Mm-hmm. And that saves you a lot of hassle. So I stopped wasting my time on applying for NIH funding because I, I knew those guys will never fund my you know, studies, my work, because, you know, I'm not a, an easygoing guy. You know, I do state my case and and I like to be criticized and I like to answer questions and I'm very happy to work with people, very happy to take challenges. And I do my consultations, $80 an hour. Some other doctors do $500 an hour. I'm 
because I just want to help people, but I still have to kind of run my operations. And, and in the meantime, I'm very happy to collaborate in, in, in any given build these laboratories and help people to achieve their health by science and knowledge and education and deuteronomics to be in their agenda sooner or later. But it's practically an educational process that pays the bill. Um, if you don't do this for money, but you do this for science and you do this just simply contribute um, the best way you can, then you're okay. Well, I want to thank you so much for your work. And yeah, if there's anything people can do to support your work um, or the work of Deutonomics Research, uh, it'd be great to, to let them know. Um, definitely, you can keep me updated on, on the papers and everything and, and, and let's stay in touch. But yeah, where I guess how can people support you or find out more about your work? Um, they could probably just Google your name and your research, um, but is there a specific place? You, yeah, if, if you type in deutonomics or deutium in my last name, Boros, or you just go to laszlogboros.com, it's my first name, my middle initial, and my last name. No dots, no separators, just laszlogboros.com. You're going to see a lot of uh, um, blogs, uh, podcasts, uh, scientific uh, papers, um, previous and current ones. And um, you can book a consult if you have specific questions. I have an hour set aside for 80 bucks, and you can just kind of ask anything you want. And if I have an answer, I'm very happy to share. Well, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for, for coming on and, and sharing your time. And this was a lot of fun. Let's, uh, let's definitely stay in touch. And I'm definitely going to be I'll, talking I'll send more. you that paper, the draft, so you can read it before it. Amazing. The review I love, process. I love so when researchers just don't do share that. with anyone yeah, because yeah. this is right now. It's just, it's just practically because we talked about it. I think you should look at it. Yeah, I would love it. I'm mountaineering and hiking is just my jam. And yeah, it's, it's exciting stuff. Excited to talk to Stephanie as well. And yeah, thank you so much, Lazala. This was a pleasure and really appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Thanks everyone. We'll see you next time.